Hello and welcome to Medical Minefield, where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kelman and I'm the health editor at The Mail on Sunday. With me is the health writer who always has the inside track, The Mail on Sunday's deputy health editor, Eve Simmons. Hello. Covid jabs for kids, it's a matter of when, not if. The rumour is August could be the rollout of the under-16s vaccination programme if all of the trials go according to plan. It seems to be safe and effective. I know in Israel they've been jabbing under-16-year-olds and uh, they've done 600 of them so far and there's been no side effects. I was interested to see that Moderna and Pfizer are testing the jab in babies as young as six months, so it could be given, you know, alongside the MMR. It might feel a bit confusing, considering around six months ago we were saying that kids basically were immune to COVID already. Yeah, the government was pushing the message that kids don't get COVID and that's why going back to school is safe, etc. Last year, the research did seem to show that. I know the WHO put out a message saying that schools played no role in transmission and, in fact, it was the adults who posed a risk to the kids. The uptick in cases we're now seeing has been directly linked to a rising case in the under-16s. Boris Johnson was on the radio uh, last week saying, you know, it, it was directly linked to schools. So, you know, the message has changed. Yeah, and I think it's important to say at this point that we wouldn't just vaccinate to protect children, we'd actually protect the rest of society. We see this with the flu jab. Once children are vaccinated, we actually see a huge drop in hospital admissions for flu-related problems in the older, vulnerable population. Um, But of course, it's a really hard sell trying to say to a parent, you need to vaccinate your child against flu when they're not going to get very ill from it. And it's in fact to protect vulnerable people around them. I also worry that people are going to think, you said to me five minutes ago, kids didn't need to worry about COVID. And now suddenly we're asking them to have this jab that people are already a bit paranoid about. You know, I, I, I sense trouble ahead. I think you might be right there. Well, you've um, managed to track down someone who's put their child in for one of the trials in the States for the Moderna jab. Yes. So Robert Byers is a journalist living in Kentucky in the US and his 12-year-old son, Nikki received the jab last month as part of medical research. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Were you nervous to sign Nikki up? Yeah, I was a little reluctant at first. I mean, it was something my wife brought up. She had just read a story where Moderna was... uh, having some trouble getting parents to sign up kids for the trial. And, um, I mean, the first thing you think of is, oh, God, what, you know, if something would go wrong, we'd hate ourselves for the rest of our lives. But we pushed forward and talked to him about it, and he was kind of excited about it. He had said early on when we talked about the vaccine back in December, when, when can I get the vaccine? And we said, well, it's not for kids. And he said, well, why not? So this was a good teaching experience for him and uh, kind of an eye-opening experience for us as well. And OK, so take me back to when he did have the jab. How was he afterwards? Well, on the first shot, which came on January 25th, he was perfectly fine when he came home. It's, it's about an hour and 15-minute drive up to Cincinnati for us. And uh, my wife had taken him up there when he got back. No, no problems, you know, just kind of went on with his day. By the next morning, he was feeling, you know, and, and remember, we don't know if he'd had the placebo or the actual vaccination. This is a double blind trial. The next morning, he was feeling kind of a malaise. But, you know, 
he's 12. He knows that there's a chance that uh, he could play up some of these symptoms and maybe not go to school, for instance. So <laughs> we were like, look, you got to be serious here. We're taking temperatures. I mean, his temperature was fine. I mean, it, it, it later in the day ticked up a degree. So just like, you know, just kind of a malaise that first time. So we just weren't sure. Of, of course, you know, going through all this, we, we want him to have the real vaccine and not the placebo because, you know, we want him to be protected. So shot number two came on February 22nd. Again, when he got home from Cincinnati, no problems. But come 2.30 in the morning, my wife and I could hear coming from his room just kind of a, a weary voice saying, Mom. And my wife took the took the thermometer up there and uh, took his temperature. And yeah, and it was above 102. <laughs> and he had been describing some very vivid fever-type dreams. And he was just overall miserable. So he managed to get back to sleep a bit, obviously didn't go to school for a day or two and just uh, laid on the couch the next day, just feeling pretty miserable. But after about a day and a half, his fever subsided and uh, he's been fine ever since. Did you ever panic about his side effects? Well, I mean, we we had known enough adults who had had very similar symptoms. And in, in fact, I mean, we were kind of waiting to see would he get any symptoms here to give us a clue that he'd had the real vaccine. I mean, obviously, you don't want your kid to feel bad, but we wanted him to give us some kind of, you know, uh, show that uh, that he may have had the real vaccine. So we talked to each other about whether we would give him some Motrin just to kind of bring his fever down. There's been kind of conflicting reports about whether that's fine. And now the latest thinking is don't do it before, but it's okay to do it after if the fever is getting high. So we did that and that brought his fever down a bit and that's what allowed him to get back to sleep. But I mean, the whole next day was just kind of a uh, him lying on the couch watching TV. And, and how does he feel having taken part in this groundbreaking trial? Uh, he's he's been kind of relishing the attention that this has brought him. I mean, his teachers were all uh, getting their first vaccine. We prioritize teacher vaccines here in Kentucky, so they were getting their first shots back in January around the same time. So they were kind of talking to him about it. And uh, while his classmates didn't really believe him and their parents had told him, them that uh, the shot wasn't for kids. They certainly didn't believe that he was going to get it. And when he told him they did, there were some who said that he was lying, <laughs> that, the, that their, their mom had said the shot was illegal for kids and things like that. So, But the teachers knew what was going on. And, and when he was getting his second shot, which is, is the one where the most symptoms always show up, it seems, they were very quizzical about, um, so what was it like? Well, you know, how did you feel? And he told him he felt pretty terrible, but, you know, he was trying to keep them pumped up. He said, well, you know, it's different for everybody. Maybe it won't be so bad for you. So so he's uh, he, he's like the, them calling him a hero and taking one for the team kind of talk. So he's 12. Robert, a lot of people listening to this, a lot of parents listening to this would feel that they just wouldn't be prepared to take a, a risk putting their kid in a, a medical trial like this. Why did you choose to do it? Well, I mean, this is not the this is not the first medical trial to ever involve children. I mean, all drugs need to be, if they're going to be approved for children, need to be tested on children, and it's for the it's for the overall good. Somebody's got to step up and do it. And you know, for the last year. There's been a lot of helpless feelings 
for from all of us during this pandemic. So when when he saw a chance that he could actually help and his parents thought that everything would be fine, we were very familiar with what was going on in the uh, adult drug trials and we knew that the vaccines were being rolled out for people here in our community, so we felt pretty good about it right from the get-go. So I think he kind of set off that from us and uh and and I would uh I'm glad we did it. I know I hope he got the vaccine. He sure seems like he did. And I hope he's protected because who knows what can happen if you uh, if you contract the virus, regardless of your age. Mm, yeah. Well, he's very brave and I'm sure you are very proud. Thank you so much for joining us, Robert. I don't know whether it's a hazard of the job that I seem to often hear about anxieties at the moment regarding the vaccine. So it's very good to hear someone that has such a level-headed approach. I mean, of course, we give kids vaccines all the time from, you know, almost from birth and we take them ourselves. It's nothing and this vaccine's no different apart from the fact that it's, you know, going to be hugely beneficial for the whole of society. Absolutely. And even when his son had those severe side effects, which would worry any parent, he was able to put it in context and say actually the likelihood is that there's not going to be any serious effect. I mean if a kid had the yellow fever vaccine for instance they would have a very similar reaction or potentially could. It's a similar uh, reactogenic vaccine as they say so it's and it's medications no if you think about paracetamol or other common medications that you might give a child you know every medicine has potential adverse effects yeah and it's about weighing up the risks and benefits and obviously the benefits in this case are massive I still think people will be nervous. I think that's inevitable, especially when it comes to children. Even the the least neurotic parents will be worried about delivering something to a child when really they, they don't need it. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's so important that the government and, you know, the chief medical officers aren't seen to kind of change what they say from now on. There really needs to be a consistent, reassuring message that this is just another vaccine uh, and just very important to have. Next, I think we should hear from uh, government vaccine advisor, paediatrician Professor Adam Finn at Bristol University. Professor Finn, not long ago, the message seemed to be that kids didn't catch COVID and had little to do with the spread of the virus. And now we're talking about potentially vaccinating them. So could you explain what's changed? I don't think anything's really changed. I think we've always needed to be prepared for the possibility of uh, immunising children. And I don't think at this point it's a certainty, but I think it's something we need to be able to do if it proves necessary in order to protect them and society as a whole, keep schools open and so on. So I think we really do need to equip ourselves with the information that we can immunise children safely and effectively so that if that does turn out to be something we have to do, we can go forward with it. If adults are all vaccinated, why would you even need to vaccinate children in that situation? The, the reason is that no vaccine programme is ever completely comprehensive. And if we were relying on vaccines to just work through their direct effects, we would always be left with a problem because there will be people who choose not to be vaccinated, who can't be vaccinated for other reasons, uh, or who don't make good immune responses or whose immune responses wear off. So nearly all of the vaccine programmes we have rely on what we call indirect effects, that, that by immunising enough people in the population, you drive down the R value of the microbe and it stops circulating and it dies out. So the, the reason that you might need to immunise children 
over and above adults is that there might still be enough susceptible people amongst adults as well as children to keep the virus uh, circulating around and causing significant amounts mm. of trouble. So that's the reason. It's a sort of mathematical question that relates to how well these vaccines interrupt transmission in the population at large. And we don't know exactly how well that is yet. I mean, with the with the flu vaccine, that's what that's the approach, isn't it? That we vaccinate children now to protect older, more vulnerable people in the community, even though we offer them the vaccine too. Has the flu vaccine program been a success in that respect? Uh, yes, I think it has, although I would correct you because we do take into account the indirect effects of immunising children against flu into the decision to conclude that it's cost beneficial. But very much part of that is actually protecting the children themselves against flu because children, especially young children, quite often get seriously ill with flu and end up in hospital and some of them die. So we are protecting children against flu and also we're protecting particularly older adults against flu by immunising children, by driving down the circulation of flu uh, viruses in the population. Now, your question was, has that been a success? And the answer is that the degree to which it's a success varies from year to year. But reliably, we see better protection in the children than we do in the older people. So it's certainly doing some good. And when there's a good match between the viruses and the, the vaccines in a particular year, then we do actually save a lot of lives that way. I mean, there's certainly a perception amongst parents. It's something that I've heard repeated again and again, that people say, why should I give my kid a flu vaccine? Uh, you know, the virus doesn't necessarily make them ill. I'm quite surprised to hear you say that the idea is to protect children. I mean, do you recognise that that's a, a perception that parents have with the flu vaccine? Yeah, it's, it's a misperception. Um, I think there's a, there's a wide uh, misperception in the population that flu is a trivial illness. Um, but actually, uh, particularly yo very young children who've never seen flu virus before uh, do, uh, do get significantly ill. Not all of them, but many of them do. Um, and uh, also children who have underlying uh, other illnesses of one kind or another can get seriously ill as well. So there is a significant amount of serious flu-related illness in the paediatric population to be prevented. Um, it's not just about giving vaccines to children to protect adults. Mm. And, I mean, we, we, we achieved something like 60%, I believe, with uh, overall coverage with the flu vaccine for children, and it's, it's much lower for the younger kids. Um, you know, if this was the case with, with COVID, that, that low numbers of, of children were vaccinated, could you ever see a situation where schools required children to be vaccinated in order to attend? A sort of, I suppose, a COVID passport for kids? So that kind of approach is certainly seen in other parts of the world, most notably in North America, uh, where not just uh, flu vaccine, but, but actually all the routine vaccines are kind of uh, a passport into school. Um, that's very much against the philosophy that we've taken in this country, and we've achieved actually much higher coverage rates than they do in North America, having an entirely free and voluntary system. So I think most of us in the field in the UK feel that to start making vaccines mandatory, whether it's for adults or children, is kind of a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, we've got uh, very high vaccine uptake rates in this country and uh, people are very willing in general to receive vaccines. 
There's even a theory that if you start trying to compel people, it undermines trust and might even uh, reduce people's willingness to accept vaccines. So I'm not really in favour of that approach, I have to say. And say uptake was low, what would you suggest? My philosophy is that people need to make uh, well-informed decisions. And if people are choosing not to have effective vaccines against serious illnesses, it's a failure on our part to give them the information that they need in order to make what is an obvious and clear decision. So I don't really tend to blame people for making the wrong decision. I tend to blame myself for failing to explain it adequately to them so that they can make the right decision. In that light, there will be parents who feel very nervous about the idea of giving the, the COVID jab to their kids. What would you say to reassure them? Uh, I, I think there are not just parents and, of children, but actually a lot of people in the population are watching what's going on and making their minds up. I think it has been a very easy decision for the elderly who were the first in, in line because they were very concerned about the risks of COVID to them personally and very keen to try and get any protection they could. As you work your way down through the population towards childhood, obviously that personal risk is reduced. And it's therefore understandable that people will look at what's going on and look for evidence that the vaccines really do work and importantly that they are safe. Um, and, And then they will be reassured in due course, assuming those two things prove to be the case. Uh, and we'll go forward and and accept immunisation. There will always be a small number of people who will not be persuaded, but for COVID, as for other vaccines, uh, we can can handle that because of the indirect effects we've been discussing. As long as enough people are immune in the population, the people who are not immune are indirectly protected by the rest of us, and we can live with that. I mean, the jab is already being given to to youngsters. We spoke to the dad of a a 12-year-old who'd had the Moderna vaccine uh, many months ago, has had both doses, they believe, because of his reaction. He had the real one rather than the placebo. Uh, What have we seen so far in terms of safety? You know, we already know that it's okay for kids, don't we? Uh, No, we don't yet. Um, I've not seen the results of that Moderna trial. Uh, It may have been going on for some time, but it was not, uh, it didn't go forward in this country, so we've not been directly involved with that. We have recently started um, work on a a study in children with the Oxford vaccine, and we're working towards uh, two different studies of the Janssen vaccine. But we're still in the relatively early stages of knowing about the safety profile, the correct dose and immunogenicity of these vaccines in children. Um, There are also a few data I've seen on the Pfizer vaccine, but not not very many so far. So we've still got a little bit of uh, work to do before we can be sure that these vaccines uh, can safely be used in children. And when, if and when it does happen, you will be sure, I'm guessing. Well, as sure as one can ever be in life, uh, of course, there's a, there's a level of certainty you need to reach before you expand up into larger numbers. But we, we need to take those steps so that we start with a few hundred and we work up to a few thousand and uh, we get increasingly certain uh, as, as those numbers go up. Once, of course, you're up into the millions, you can be even more confident. But there's never, uh, there's never any absolute certainty in science. Mm. Professor Finn, thanks so much for finding some time to talk to us. You can listen to Medical Minefield for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google or anywhere you get your podcasts.
Well, I was interested that he said regarding flu, the jab, I'd always understood that the jab was to protect everyone else, not the kids. But he was saying that flu does make children ill and that's another reason they're given the vaccine. I just did a bit of Googling and apparently it's around 2 in 10,000 children that get hospitalised with flu. So it's it's quite rare. It is quite rare, but it's not insignificant given the number of children who will contract flu in any given year. And less rare than the number of children that would get ill with COVID, which is sort of 0.00 something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's extremely rare. But given the fact that there is definitely a perception amongst parents that why should I have the flu jab for my kid when they're not particularly going to get ill? I mean, that's obviously the way to position it then, isn't it? That it's not necessarily just about protecting other people, but it could also be about protecting your child. But my point is that if you can't even persuade people to give their kids the flu jab, how are you going to persuade them to give them the COVID jab, which, you know, I mean, they're really not going to get ill with COVID, are they? Well, I don't know. I think although there has been this perception that children don't get ill with COVID, COVID itself carries such a serious stigma, as it were, and it sort of infers very serious illness. Um, And I think people take it a lot more seriously than they do the flu. You think that because of the amount of anxiety around COVID in general... And how much effect it's had on society. It's shut down the whole of society. That in itself tells you something. More people will be more willing at this point to have their kids vaccinated. I would hope so, yes. I did think he missed something. He said that it's all about parents making the active decision not to have their child vaccinated, but often that's not the case. It might just be practical barriers, such as having several children and not being able to organise in time to get them all appointments at the GP to get them vaccinated. We see this with the flu vaccine. It's Mm. quite well documented in research. I'll put money on the next great controversial health debate being vaccine passports for schools. I was really interested in what he said, that it hasn't worked in America, and that's absolutely true. They try to force kids to have the vaccine by shaming parents who don't. And in fact, rates of flu vaccination are appalling in those states because parents dig their heels in and they say no. And we've always achieved a better rate of all kinds of vaccination by getting people on board. We try and hold people's hands through it, don't we? We try and educate them and talk to them at their level rather than dictating to them what they should and shouldn't do. I think that that's it's a much more powerful method of convincing people. But there will be that knee-jerk reaction, won't there, as there is right now, to kind of talk about the the mandatory side of things, to try and force people that, you know, if, if someone's reluctant, we've just got to, you know, do something and press the emergency button. I think we can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but I, I very much doubt that will ever happen in this country. I'd be yeah. very surprised. I'll eat my proverbial hat. Yeah, but one can bet it'll be floated as an idea. Yeah, definitely. And I wonder if that will cause anxiety and damage within itself. Yeah, I just don't think that you can debate taking education away from children. I mean, we can perhaps debate whether young people will be able to go into pubs, (laughs) but whether children will get a right to their education because their parents don't want to have them vaccinated or haven't been able to have them vaccinated, I think Mm. that's a totally different ballgame. What about the MMR? What about all the kids, you know, not having the MMR? Do you think they should be made to have it? No, I don't think they should be made to have it. I think that we're not far off herd immunity, aren't we? So, I mean, in some pockets it's a problem. Yeah, we did a piece together about two years ago that looked at the uh, middle class hardcore 
MMR deniers. Yes, that was so interesting. The mums who knew best. I mean, what do you, you know, it was their own kids that were asking to be vaccinated in the end. Yeah, and were teaching their mothers a lesson about actually this this is the medical fact and I should have my vaccine, please. Don't deny me it. Yeah. People really pick and choose which vaccines to be paranoid about, though, don't they? Because the HPV vaccine has been a big success. Yes, exactly. The HPV vaccine, which protects against cervical cancer, we've got 80% uptake rates um, in teenage girls, which is really remarkable given that it's not been around for that long. Yes, and experts say that in the not-too-distant future, cervical cancer and other cancers caused by HPV could disappear, which is a brilliant example of why vaccines are... Amazing, in my uh, view. And the COVID vaccine is is probably the most amazing of all right now. I can't wait to get mine. Um, I expect you feel the same. Yes, I can't wait. Counting down the days, which there are many. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we have time for. You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday. And visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to all of our podcasts, free and in full. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at mailplus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then.